0: From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Connecting with Walt podcast. Uh-huh. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. The best way to support the show is by booking a Disneyland, Walt Disney World, Disney Cruise Line, or Adventures by Disney vacation with Dreams Unlimited Travel. Get a free no-obligation quote today for your next dream vacation at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 275 of Connecting with Walt. This week, I am joined by my guest co-host and good friend, Trish Healy. Trish, welcome to Connecting with Walt.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Michael. I'm very excited to be here today.
0: Oh, it is my pleasure. So would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: Well, Michael, I'm a longtime Disney fan, ever since I was a little girl, growing up in the uh, back east, and I am a retired teacher now after 38 years, um, and so that gives me more time to enjoy Disney activities, and also my free time, I am taking classes to develop a second career in
0: voiceover as a voiceover actor. Oh, that's fascinating. That is neat. You're, uh, you're the second person I know that is actually doing that. Oh really? The son of a friend of mine. Yeah. Son of a friend of mine is also doing that as well. So maybe one day, um, Michael, you'll hear me on some
1: Disney animation or maybe as a narrator for one of their uh,
0: documentaries
1: That would be a dream come true.
0: That would be great. That would be. That would be. Maybe a narrator, a guided tour in a museum, Mm -hmm. the recording of a guided tour. That would be cool. Very cool. Now, Carol and I met Trish and her husband because we're all members of the Walt Disney Family Museum. That's how we met. And I asked Trish to join me today to talk about some of the recent events that were held at the Walt Disney Family Museum. They've had some great talks lately. So before we get started, though, Trish, I wanted to get your thoughts about the recent announcement the museum made that Walter Elias Disney Miller, the son, the grandson of Walt, is now the new board president of the Walt Disney Family Museum. He takes over the role from his sister, Tamara Miller, who held the role for four years, and she'll continue to serve on the museum's board of directors. Of course, Walter... Was the co-founder of the museum along with his mother, Diane Disney Miller. So, so what do you think of this change?
1: Well, when I heard the news, Michael, I was very excited because, um, since he was the co-founder and working so closely with his mom, um, for the, to develop the museum, I was very excited to see him come back because I think he had stepped away for a while. And I think that, um, One of the things that I remember that I first learned about Walter was that he produced um, Walt, the man behind the myth back in 2001. And he has, you know, such knowledge and passion for Disney and history and his grandfather. And I thought who better to be the president um, of the, of the board. And so what I'm hoping is that he will, you know, bring it back full circle to when the museum first opened and his mom was there and he was there as well. And hopefully that we can um have some, you know, continue to have, he has that eye for the future, but also to remember and value the past and the legacy of Walt Disney. Because I feel like we've moved away from that a little bit. And I'm hoping that with him as the president, we will see of the board that we will see that um coming back a little bit more um, at the museum.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I, I'm hoping that this is nothing but a positive step going back to their focus on what the museum is about. Exactly. About continuing the legacy of Walt Disney. It, it was. And. Um, oh, I'm sorry, Michael. Um, I
1: I just was listening to an interview back from back in 2010 and they were um, talking about the um, Fantasia coming out on DVD and Diane and Walter were there and they, the interviewer was asking Diane, Oh, is this great for animators to come to the museum? And what she said was that, no, this is, um, they wanted to have the museum be there for, um, anyone who was interested in Walt's life. She wanted it to be available for anyone, not just, you know, animators and artists, but all of us. And then Walter said that, you know, it's a great story. It's a great American story about not just Walt Disney, but the men and women who helped him build this, um, you know, great company. And so he really wanted to, you know, make the museum that showcase for this. And so that's what I'm hoping we'll see again. You know, again, but also incorporating what's going on currently too. But I feel like we've lost a little bit of that past.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. And you mentioned that wonderful documentary, Walt Disney, The Man Behind the Myth. I know that they had that PBS documentary a couple of years ago. I, I had problems with it. Uh, and that I talked about on the show when it first came out. But w- th- Walt, the, Walt Disney, The Man Behind the Myth, I think is the definitive documentary on Walt Disney. It's wonderful. You can order it from the museum's webpage. I think it was on Disney Plus for a while. I don't know if it's still there. I haven't um, checked it out lately. But it's readily available. Oh, I totally... Out there. So I do recommend... People who listen to the show, you would love that documentary. Exactly, because it not because it they interviewed people who worked directly with Walt. Many of them now are no longer with us, so that's another reason why that documentary is a treasure. Almost to definitely to have in your collection.
1: And, and the other thing too, Michael, is that you know Diane always said, and, and Walter as well, that Walt he was a person. He was a human being. He was not perfect. And they're Mm -hmm. sharing that information with all of us. It's not sugar-coated. He's not a God. He's not, you know, something. And so I feel like we get the truth about him and all the things that he accomplished and that affected so many of us.
0: I agree. I think that we can learn a great deal about a person by seeing how they Recover from their, um, challenges and their stumbles and their mistakes and how they move forward. And you're right. The, 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 what's in the museum, what's on that documentary does not shy away from any of that. Exactly. So it's not, you're right. It's not, it's not a fantasy or an idealistic portrayal mm-hmm. of Walt. It's very realistic. So, which is why it's so good. The museum and, and the documentary. Yes, yes. So, but, so the first talk we're going to talk about, uh, talking about people that, uh, you know, have, you know, learned from Walt and continued his legacy. Back in September 16th, uh, 2023, Andreas Deja gave a wonderful talk At the museum on 100 years of disney animation now this was one of the reasons you want to be a member of the museum this was a members only event so if you were not a member you couldn't attend this and of course you know that he's a polish-born german-american and he worked as a supervising animator on many characters in disney animated films he he was well known for a lot of Disney villains like Gaston and Beauty and the Beast, Shafar and Aladdin, Scar in The Lion King. Of course he also uh was responsible for creating Hercules and Lilo and Lilo and Stitch. And you know, he credits seeing the jungle book when he was eleven years old that inspired him to become an animator. Do you have a a favorite character of Andreas Dejan?
1: Trish? Um I would have to say um, Lilo from Lilo and Stitch. I just there's just something about her that I just really related uh, to, and um, I do love all his villains, but I, I loved her too. So she's just, she's her own person, and I like that about her. Yeah,
0: I think for me it's Mama Odie in Princess and the Frog. Oh, that's a good one too, Michael. Just because, first of all, I love that film. And the music, but she is such a great character. The way she moves and her expressions, you can just see her move through her weight. You know, you see her, you feel her, her, her body weight and presence as she moves. And, and also just the humor and the hilarity in how she moves since she's blind and how she moves through her environment without a care in the world. Uh, He just captured all of that so well. Uh, so that's one of the reasons I like her, and, and I'm really hoping in the redesign of Splash Mountain that she is a major character. Oh, I hope so too. In, in Tiana's Bayou Adventure, mm-hmm. in that. But he was hired in 1980 to uh, on the Black Cauldron. And in twenty seventeen he won the Windsor McKay Award in twenty fifteen. Andreas Deja became a Disney legend. And in twenty twenty-three, he um he uh released his first independent film, um Mushka, which when they showed it that debuted at the Walt Disney Family Museum, and I was away and I couldn't see it. I don't know if you got to see it.
1: Uh, No, Michael, I was away as well and wasn't able to see it. So I was really disappointed. I hope to see it one of these days. Yeah. I I think
0: it's available online. He, uh, Oh, on his website. website. He has a blog Mm -hmm. called Deja View. I know that. Well, for, and he said for the hundred years, years of Walt Dis, of the Walt Disney Studios existence, he's been a part of it for 30 years. And he was very proud of that. And like I mentioned, he saw the Jungle Book. He said when he was 10 and his, his fascination with the drawing began when he saw the Jungle Book. So he wrote the Walt Disney Studio asking how he could work for them. And he wrote them from Germany. And he's, and they said he actually got a response, which I think is very cool. And um, they, they said, go to art school and study the human figure and go to um, live drawing classes, go to the zoo and draw animals." And they said. Don't, And this is something for people that want to be animators and someday want to work for the Walt Disney Studio. They said, don't send us the drawings of Mickey and Pluto because we can teach you to do that. So, of course, you know, they want to see what your artistic style is and what you're capable of doing. And so they don't want to see you sending in Disney characters. So he was hired out of art school into the training program for six weeks in the early 1980s at the Disney studio. And he said Frank Thomas, Ollie Johnson were still there, and he could talk with them about uh, how they work and animation. He met Mark Davis, Ward Kimball. Um, he said they didn't reach out much to students, and, and he also met Wooly Reitherman before his accident. And he learned that they had troubles making the films, and they had to change things. And they got notes from Walt to change things. And they were all very competitive with each, with each other, which is, I've read about this competition um, amongst themselves. It wasn't one big, you happy know, family. happy Happy <laughs> boys club you know there necessarily um frank and ollie um said Milt call was a good drawer but he couldn't capture emotions and call said that they could animate but they couldn't draw so um so there was that back and forth with them um he said that he would have um he would have the uh like um parties at his home and with, with the animators and Richard Sherman would come over and play his piano at the parties. Is that, can you imagine? Oh,
1: I, I can't, yeah. I, I get nervous just having my family come over for, and friends come over to dinner. Imagine these Disney legends, Richard Sherman coming over to your house for a party.
0: <laughs> I know really just hobnobbing yeah. with them. I know. And he asked what they thought of The Little Mermaid and The Lion King, because those were the, you know, those are the movies that had just come out, started what we now call the Disney Renaissance. Milt Call said in Bambi, they didn't show um, Bambi's mother dying like they did Mufasa and The Lion King. So he was very critical of that. Mark Davis said, for Bambi, we studied the animals from the inside out. And when they moved, you could feel them move. And he thought the lions in The um, Lion King looked like plush toys.
1: Oh, I, I laughed so when I heard him say that. They were very critical.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they, these they, the old legends, or the nine old men were very critical of what we now consider the classic film. Yeah, they
1: didn't hold back at so, all.
0: No, no. So he thinks the nine old men were the best, but with the Disney Renaissance films, they were working to make them sort of make their own statements and, and they were striving to animate like them. And they said teenagers and their families came back to Disney films after the 80s. That's very true because they sort of had abandoned them somewhat in the 70s. Um Then he said they got lazy after the Lion King and box office receipts went down. And uh, then he did a little presentation and he, and then he talked about, uh, and he, he had like some of his samples and his examples of his drawings and characters and things like that, that he showed. And he said he, he um, his portfolio samples that that he showed when applying to the Walt Disney Studios, he said he studied their model sheets, and he realized he needed to improve his draftsmanship. And so one of the things that he he said was that the alligator was something that he drew as in his portfolio. He said it was a good model because alligators don't move.
1: Oh, the, oh I remember and that. And then yeah.
0: he drew... Yeah. And then he said he, that in his portfolio, he included a camel chewing because that showed motion. Mm-hmm. And then he drew an elephant. And then he had, um, sketches of his landlord's son. And there was a little boy. And then he, um, drew dogs and other things of animals that were in motion. And he used stills from, um, Super 8 films. In order to capture that motion in in um, individual in his uh, in his portfolio of individual um, scenes, and then that got him in. So, see, that's an example of the kind of things you need to have in your portfolio. You know, um, you know when you're applying, and, and also the fact- Eric
1: Larson wrote him. Well I was just going to say, oh, also there. the fact that he listened. Sometimes I think, um, you know, he asked what he can do because this was like such a dream of his to work Mm -hmm. for the Disney company. So he took to heart what they said and did it. I think sometimes today we, you know, we want to just automatically get in there. So he listened to what they said and he put that hard work and effort in,
0: um, to achieve his goals and his dream. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And now Eric, after he turned in his portfolio, Eric Larson wrote him on jungle book stationery. And said, "You got what it takes." So, so it's interesting. It was on Jungle Book stationery, and the Jungle Book was the film that inspired, inspired him to mm-hmm. become an animator. So, his first assignment was The Black Cauldron, and he read the books. He loved them, and he showed his concept sketches of the book's characters, and then he um, showed the then he was showed the um, studio sketches of the characters. Uh his hit he said that the inexperience in storytelling and animation showed in the film. And that that was um that was not a critical success, Mm -hmm. that film. It's been a long time since I've watched it. I have to rewatch it. So then he talked about his Oh, oh no are I I, I had
1: to you know I've heard people talk about it so I, I did watch it maybe about 6 months ago it, yeah I'd have to say Michael it is not one of my favorite films disney films to watch but I know it has a cult following though there's some people who really do like it
0: it does mm-hmm. it does and they had a wonderful you know at the Tokyo Disneyland you know Cinderella castle they had that whole scene in there oh um, for years from the black cauldron huh. oh, wow. in there and they closed it down right before carol and i first went there oh. so uh which is sh- a shame in 2001 so so i'm um, now king triton that was one of his characters he liked doing the father figure um you know triton and ariel is uh basically is his father and older sister and they had the same relationship when she started dating and he used his father's gestures for King Triton. I remember he sort of um acted them out. Bit, it was it was great to uh, see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then Gaston, he said that was his toughest assignment ever. He he his original sketch he was a big villain with a big jaw, and he was told by Jeffrey Katzenberger to change him because he had to be handsome because uh because of the themes of the film is don't judge a book by its cover uh the beast was ugly but turned out to have a have a heart of gold, and Gaston was the opposite mm-hmm. so he said it was it was difficult to animate a handsome character compared uh you know, to a caricature. You know,
1: so. yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting when he when he explained that, and and, and it made perfect sense. But at, at first, like you think, villain ugly, but no, in the story, it you know with the storyline, it, it wouldn't have made sense. So,
0: yeah, yeah. Now, Jafar, he felt the face should look like a mask and look like a villain. Um, He said there was clean line work, and he it was not too chiseled him, now Eric Goldberg did some tests of the genie uh, with Robin Williams' voice, and everyone's jaw dropped. He uh, they thought Shafar would sort of get lost in the film, so he sort of toned him down a bit. The genie to counter, in order to counterbalance the genie who was all over the place, and he gave and he gave Shafar fingers that were like spiders. <laughs> in their movement. So now scar scar. Now he had just done two villains and then he was assigned scar and he, he, he assumed those scar would be given to someone else. And everyone was looking at the other characters and then they heard Jeremy irons recordings and he felt he had to do scar. So he, um, said that he, he said he knew it was, um, he knew it was not his time, but he was told then that they had him in mind to do Scar. So he said that, uh, his, it was his favorite character because he was evil and intelligent. And he showed, and he showed the character sheets and the anatomy sketches for Scar for that. And then after The Lion King, he was having lunch with Don Hahn and Jeremy Irons came in to get, uh, let's see, to get um, an ashtray because he was smoking outside and running lines with another actor. And they talked to him and Jeremy um, Irons said he was, uh, he had, had done a good job because he hadn't he hadn't gotten another offer to voice an animated film so anyway so he, he thought he had not done a good job because he had never gotten another offer to do an, another animated film after lion king hmm. so and and then he um animated mickey mouse and in roger rabbit one of my favorite films then he animated mickey mouse again in prince and the popper and then he animated him for Runaway Brain. And that's a satire on the Frankenstein story. And it was animated by a French group of artists who did the Goofy movie. I love the Runaway Brain. And I know the Disney company sort of, I don't know, they, they sort of like to put it in the vault and lock it up every now and then. They do, but- I think it's sitting next to Song of the South. Yeah,
1: yeah Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But it's so much fun. I mean, it's it's just great to see another aspect of the of the character. And um, yeah, I mean, like a little Dr. Jekyll, and Mr. Hyde of Mickey Mouse. So yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely. It's great for how oh, perfect, perfect. So. Yeah. Now, for the film Hercules, Andreas was initially offered Hades, and he was told they wanted to get Jack Nicholson as the voice, but Jack Nicholson wanted too much money. So Andreas was then asked to do the title character and give someone else a chance to do the villain. Then he did Isma for and then Eartha Kitt was already hired and he based all his sketches on her and originally it was called Treasures of the Sun and and, and probably people know the story it was going to be a little it wasn't the musical and, and all that and it just wasn't working and then he saw a sketch of Lilo in Lilo and Stitch and he fell in love with the story and the idea that you didn't know how the um, film would end mm-hmm. for that. So with Lilo, he went on a research trip to Hawaii and he sketched some school children. And he said um Lilo's surfing sketches were based on um things he saw in a surfing magazine. So and then for African cats. Don Hahn was executive producer on the Disney Nature African Cats film. And Andreas did artwork based on the film scenes. And they were sold at the film's opening at the El Capitan. Gosh, I wish I had been there for that.
1: I was just thinking the same thing, Michael. Oh, that would have been fantastic to see that and able to purchase. I wonder how much
0: those went for. I know. I know. And then my favorite character that he's done, Mama Odie, he thought she should be huggable and be round and curvy. And he was told that she was old and had to be bony. So he changed her to have bony arms. And he says, sometimes you have to compromise Mm -hmm. in animation. An important lesson for animators. And I've heard that from other animators as well. And that's where young animators sometimes get into trouble because they don't compromise.
1: No, you're exactly right, Michael. Yeah. Yeah. They have to Mm
0: -hmm.
1: learn. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's not just about them. It's what's going to be best for the, you know, the picture and for, you know, everyone. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's all about the story. Mm -hmm. And then he animated Tigger for Winnie the Pooh films. And that was his last assignment with um, Disney. And uh, but he said he loved Roger Rabbit. He said he could do six. He could do a presentation on six hours of Roger Rabbit. And during the Q&A session, he mentioned he bought Frank and Ollie's collection. Um, he says the studio doesn't keep all the drawings and tells the animators to take them or they will throw them away. So Frank and Ollie took their stuff home and, um, he bought them all. I would just, wouldn't you just love to go to his house and just go through Oh, definitely. I mean, how magnificent, but that explains why at some of the museums, special, uh, Special exhibits. So much of it comes from Andreas Deja's collection.
1: Uh, that's what I was just so. going to say, Michael. And and what I think is so nice that he's not just like keeping it for himself. is like, oh, this is mine, mine to look at. But no, he's sharing it with all of us. At you know, especially at the museum, because yeah, you'll you'll see those little cards. Right. Oh, unknown from you know Andreas Deja, and so it is really great. And and I think that it goes along with what else I was feeling about him whenever he speaks at the museum, he's just such a you just it's just he's really enjoyable to listen to. He's a down-to-earth guy, you know, someone you you just automatically I I I just feel like I like him. But he's a fan and he appreciates the history of the Disney Company and all and what, you know, Walt did and all the early or the earlier animators and he just you know, learn from them, and just appreciated all their hard work and their talent, and and it just it just really shows. And he's very humble. I think he's a very humble person. You know, mm-hmm. so even though he was explaining to us, he is, he's about all his work. It wasn't like, well, look at what I did. You know, it was just like, oh, hey, this is you know part of it.
0: You know that. Yeah, and he, and he definitely talked about how he learned. He didn't know everything he learned from other animators from The Nine Old Men. And he does co- come across like somebody that you can invite over mm-hmm. to your house, have dinner with them and just talk, yes. you know, and chat about whatever, you know. He just comes across like a sort of an everyday kind Ex- of Oh, that's a great way to describe him, Michael. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, "Um, computer graphics isn't for him, and he likes the happy accidents of drawing and he's fascinated by how to create things from paper and pencil mm-hmm. and so that was sort of that was the the end of that presentation a really good one. He always gives good uh-huh. presentations." Yeah. Now, the next one was just a couple of weeks later on September 30th, 2023. And this is by Kim Irvine on the Mentors of Disneyland. And we all know her. She's the Executive Creative Director uh, for Walt Disney Imagineering at Anaheim. And they do have an office at the Disneyland Resort that she started many years ago. So there are a group of Imagineers that they are assigned to Disneyland. So we're very fortunate um to have that and they are you know she definitely comes across as someone that is dedicated to the legacy of Walt and storytelling Mm -hmm. in there and she said she began in the model shop in um, 1970 and some of the things that we know her for uh, I'm just sort of looking her up right now let's see here I had her up But let's uh, find her up. She, of course, worked on – she's known for work on The Haunted Mansion, Pirates of the Caribbean. She provides the face of Madame um, Leota during the Halloween, uh, you know, the Halloween layover, Nightmare Mm -hmm. for Christmas layover, the Haunted Mansion holiday, and Little Leota as well. And, um, she just recently, the new, uh, Adventureland treehouse opened. Oh, yeah. And she was, um, responsible for that. And I, I've heard nothing but positive things, um, about that. She also worked on the 2021 refurbishment of the Jungle Cruise at Disneyland. Of course, she also, uh, which was a bit controversial, bringing in the, um, Disney characters into um, It's small a world. Small World. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, was that was a big project for her? And of course, if you recently watched Muppets Haunted Mansion, as she was, uh, she appeared as a maid mm-hmm. in that. And she is the daughter of Imagineer Leota Tombs, who is the actual face of Madame Leota and Little Leota. And Kim looks so much like her that's why they used her um, when they use when they needed a Leota to have new words. Mm-hmm for, you know, new dialogue for the Haunted Mansion holiday and all that. So, so that's very cool. She has been, um, she's been 53 years with the Walt Disney Company. And so she was really talking about some of her, some of her um, mentors. Now there was an audio visual issue as seems to happen quite often at the museum. Maybe it's because somebody's wireless uh, phone was interfering, as they always tell us to turn it off. But she talked about some of her mentors that weren't in the program as they were endeavoring to correct the issue. So she talked about Mark and Alice Davis and how um, they were both close friends of her family. And they said Mark and Alice's styles were very different. And Kim's team had to figure out how to combine them. And she said, uh, Mary Blair, she, they, she had very bad eyesight, which I didn't realize. Although she said she would have four or five glasses on chains around her neck and then just put on different ones, huh. depending upon you know the distance, what she had to look at. And it, she was very shy. And so she could do childish paintings that look sophisticated. And so Mary suggested that she paint, she suggested to Kim that she paint with her left hand to achieve the same look, and it worked. So, uh, Some of her favorite places to eat at Disneyland uh, are the Harbor Galley on the water, which is actually one of mine too. And her husband's from Massachusetts. So they like the lobster rolls and the clam chowder bowls, which are my favorite things I always get there. Oh, I like those too, Michael. They're really good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's a nice location Mm -hmm. right there in Rivers of America. Now she said a big part of her job is to share with um, what she learned with new with the new Imagineers, what she learned from her mentors. And, um, and then the, the AV problems were resolved. So we went, we went on with the show <laughs> in there. So her parents were, um, Harry and Leota Toombs. Her father was a self-taught cartoonist and he was one of Walt's early animators. He worked on Pinocchio through 101 Dalmatians. And then he went to Hanna-Barbera. And then she learned to draw by tracing his drawings and watching her mother draw. And, um, her mother was a great musician and played, um, all the horn instruments. Oh. And, um, the mother, Leota Toombs, um, met her father as an in-betweener at the Walt Disney studio. And she left in 1947 to raise the family, but always did, um, did art. And instructed Kim and her sister on painting and drawing, and then, when she was hired at wed she um she was doing um oh said a little building on Sonora in the model shop I have here, and I don't even remember what that means yeah. anyway she did um she did figure building, figure finishing. finishing. Um, That's what her mother did. And hair and makeup on figures and all that on the audio animatronic figures. And that's all the really famous photos you see of her. Mm-hmm. Is she's dressing the hair, putting the feathers on the tiki birds, you know, things like that. Now the early years of Kim were in the model shop. She started in 1970 and Wed was trying to finish up on Walt Disney world, it was six months from opening. And so her mom asked her to help out painting in the model shop because they were all scrambling. Um, Harriet Burns was her mentor um, at that time. She was the first lady in the model shop. She worked on everything in the original Disneyland and She was never a prima donna and she would work on anything. And then, um, JC, and I didn't get the last name. It was the first art director and she had, she, um, just was able to uh, she started out mixing paints and ink and paint and she was very hard on the girls you had to mix the paints correctly and she really went into that um how they would uh like she would make them mix the paints over and over again and she could tell and and, and it looked to kim like okay i got this and then she would this JC would look at it and say, No, you have too much of this in here and not enough of that. It, cause she, she could just see the colors so well. Huh. The individual colors and all that in the paint. And she said it was horrible. I mean, because you had to get it right.
1: Michael, did she? And all that
0: for it to match.
1: Did she say, like, didn't they have, like, oh, two teaspoons of this and, a half a teaspoon of that. I mean, you have
0: followed these directions. I don't know. You had, you'd think so, but no, you had to know how to do I it just, because it had to match. Because when you move from one cell to another, if it's off just a little, you're going to see it on that big screen.
1: Oh, I, oh, I totally agree. You know, but if I, suddenly the, yeah. but I just was wondering, like, because that's so important that they would have like, I I mean, I wasn't sure if you like weighed it a formula. Yeah, exactly a formula that that you would weigh out like the certain aspects and like was it not mixed properly
0: and like stirred enough or unless it was unless it was all about teaching them to be exact. Oh, maybe it could be that.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. You know, it was more about the lesson learned kind of thing. Oh, maybe yeah. So, and then she worked on um, black light for snow white, the snow white attraction in Walt Disney world. She worked on black light painting and then, um, and then also she worked on model painting on, on flats for, um, movie theaters huh. that we see in there. And John Hench was said to have the most influence on Walt Disney. He, um, especially in architecture and styles. And he wanted to make sure people felt the space instead of just looking Mm. at it. And so John Hench and Bill Justice argued over who did the best Mickey Mouse because they, for a long time, they did the official portraits. Oh, that's right. Mm -hmm. You know, of Mickey Mouse. So in 1980 the uh, Imagineering offices opened at Disneyland and he would uh, John Hench would visit um, once a month to walk the park with her and tell her stories about the park no that would have been wonderful mm-hmm. and John asked her to work on color and architecture and he asked her to work on the carousel because they were going to redo it and he had different. Colored horses and noticed that the children always ran to the white horse. So he wanted to paint them all white and so, um, and then repaint the saddles. And she also created, she did the research and created all the heraldry that's on the saddles Uh of the horses. Oh, wow. And she had to do the research to make sure because heralds tell a story. And she had to make sure she was telling correct stories. Um, wow. through the heraldry. Huh. And all that. I, <laughs> because my family has a herald.
1: Oh really. Um,
0: and all that. That goes back a long time. And yeah, and everything on it tells a story.
1: I never knew that about so, that, you know, Michael. So, that, so I can
0: so I, huh. so I can, I can appreciate that. So the rental in the original fantasy land, she said it had lots of primary colors and stripes and geometric patterns, and so they wanted to make them softer colors. So she first worked on the attraction facades with new colors and the heraldry and then um she also changed the designs on the teacups, apparently, when John Hinch and all that when they first drew them. They, and, and Mary Blair drew them and all that. They just drew shapes on them. They never thought that was what they were going to look like. Oh. So, um, <laughs> so she actually created real designs for them so that we see today on the Disneyland teacups. So and then um, Main Street was muted colors. It was all brown and grays. And John wanted to have them to be bright Victorian colors that would indicate what was inside the shop. And and then uh, also when the, and also what product is in the shop. And when the product changes, he said they would repaint the facade. Mm. So and. John Hench hated contradictions. And so that's how the themed trash cans and the popcorn carts came to be. So at Tokyo Disneyland main street, it's under, you know, it's under a cover and, and the sunlight was different and the buildings are very tall because there's the offices and all that on the second floors. So they had to sort of push the color palette for that to be brighter And in Sleeping Beauty Castle, they used Herb Ryman's rendering of the castle when building it, but he didn't intend for it to be the um, color board for the castle. He didn't intend his drawings to be the color board for the castle. And he wanted to repaint it. And so she redid she's redone the color scheme 6 times oh, really? for the castle and added stained glass windows and remember when they added the squirrel downspouts mm-hmm, and all of that and you know everybody complains <laughs> when when the castle changes is you know color changes you know but it always looks good i think so too think. yeah so there was a new color scheme for the 50th anniversary you remember it included the stones putting and they put glitter in the paint and it had color shifting colors in there for, and for the roof. And that's when they added the um, gold turrets celebrating each decade of Disneyland in there. But if you look, because it was color shifting, the colors changed as you throughout yeah. the day. And as you sort of looked at them from different Angels, angles uh-huh. and all that. Now for today's castle, she wanted to use cobalt blue on the roof for, um, as, um, as, as Herb Ryman designed it. So after, um, Shanghai Disneyland, the, the Disneyland president wanted a bigger castle, but they couldn't add turrets to Sleeping Beauty Castle without tearing down the castle because oh. it couldn't support new turrets. So they did, um, atmospheric forced perspective with darker colors at the bottom and lighter colors gradually going up to make the castle seem larger. Could you imagine if they added turrets, people would go nuts. Oh yeah.
1: But that's amazing how I mean that castle. But I was just going to say, that's amazing how they, I mean, use the paint color to just cr- create that illusion because they couldn't, you know, replace them. So just the, yeah, I would never have yeah. thought of that, Michael.
0: <laughs> I know. I wouldn't have either. That's why I'm not an imaginary. <laughs> Me. Or uh, not an or not an artist either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So now at the end of the day, after they did their walk in the park, John Hench always rode Space Mountain two times. And then they, and then they would have an ice cream sundae on Main Street. And then she said, Rolly Crump was the most bohemian of the art directors. He had a great sense of humor and uh, Disneyland was 30 years old and Wed was working on Tokyo Disneyland and Disneyland Paris. Um, and, sh- but uh, he didn't visit Disneyland as much um, during that time. And Marty Scar was worried things would change. So he appointed uh, Roley, um to oversee Disneyland Um, and, and that's when he set them up at Disneyland, the Imagineers. So he didn't want Disneyland to get neglected as all these other parks were being Uh. built internationally. And so Rolly would walk the park daily to see what needed maintaining and what could be improved. And so Kim said she learned to think outside of the box from Rolly and to stretch the limits and to have fun. And then there was Bill Morgan Evans was another mentor. He and his father and brother um, did the landscaping on Walt's home and and in Holmby Hills. And, and so Walt hired them to do the landscaping at Disneyland. And he was, Bill Evans was passionate about plants and apparently he had a story for every plant and every tree in the park um and kim i think shared a few that that he would just they'd see a tree and he'd just start talking about it something mm-hmm. um he grew some trees in adventureland from seeds that he would collect during his trips around the world wow and um he i know that's amazing those trees were grown from yes. seeds <laughs> so some of them um he and bill evans always made sure the environment told the story of the attraction so um, now, as you know, they shortened rivers of America when creating Galaxy's Edge. I, you remember how controversial that was. I do. I, I do. was a critic of it. Um, and then they slowed down the ships so that it would still seem like, you know, a long cruise, cruise mm-hmm. along the rivers of America. And so Bill redid the landscaping and the topography to tell the stories of each region on the river. And they said Bill also was into hardscape, so he created the cobblestone for Fantasyland, and he um, he all, and also the um, sort of the packed mud patina for Adventureland. So all of the that texture, you know, the texture um, walkways mm-hmm. and all that throughout various areas of the park. Bill Evans is responsible oh, really? for yeah. all of that. Yeah. So and then uh, and then um, Big Thunder um, Ranch. Oh, I miss that so much. It was built on a meadow between um, between. Uh, let's see, it, um, it, it, in Adventureland between. I wrote FL. What could possibly be FL and Adventureland? I don't remember huh. now. And the and so the train would go by, so the guests could see the horses. When they weren't working, and that lasted ten years, until the oh Frontierland. Oh yeah, It was built between Frontierland and Adventureland, <laughs> yeah. and that and that the train would go by so guests could see the horses when they weren't working. And that lasted ten years till the Festival of Fools area was built. And that it didn't last very long yeah. at all, but that was a great show. It de- it was, yes, and yeah, yeah. That the Festival of Fools, the hun- they told mm-hmm. the Hunchback of Notre Dame story in a very creative manner. So Tony Baxter, and that was another one of her mentors. And he says, she said they started in the model shop about six months apart. And that he was very passionate. And she said, he always gives a hundred percent. And for new Fantasyland, um, Tony wanted it to have the European style that reflected each of the attractions. And Ken Anderson, who worked on the films, um, created the drawings for the facades, and Kim did the color boards and the styling for all of those. For the Disneyland Paris castle, they wanted the Sleeping Beauty story to be told in stained glass, and so she created all those renderings. And it is magnificent if you ever go there. I think out of all the castles, it's the most beautiful. I think that's what Tony Baxter says, too. (laughs) Yeah, I think, I think Disneyland Paris is the most beautiful mm-hmm. of all the parks. It's on my bucket list, Musk, Michael. And then, yes. Oh, you have to go. You have to go. Um, after the success of the Christmas overlay for It's a Small World, which again is beautiful. I think that's my favorite. Overlay? My favorite time to see It's a Small World is for Christmas. Um, I agree, yeah. They thought about a how. Hallo-
1: Party. Oh, I'm sorry. I said, I agree. That's my favorite time to go see it too. Yeah. Yeah. In,
0: inside mm-hmm. and out, it's just beautiful. So, that, and that's what's so neat about Disneyland is compared to the Magic Kingdom. So we have these overlays that we do that um, that are, that, excuse me, really make the holiday time special. Um, anyway, so after that, the success of that, they thought about a Halloween overlay for Haunted Mansion, but um, The Nightmare Before Christmas came out, so they decided to use that mm. for the overlay. So and we talked about that a few weeks ago um, for our Halloween episode. And then they said they needed to have Madame Leota tell a new story about Jack Skellington. So they asked him to do it, and she did it exactly as her mother did, except that they had a harness on her head rather than tying her hair to the chair. And that um, and that led to the Muppets Haunted Mansion scene with Miss Piggy. If you recall that. <laughs> and then um, Tony Baxter and Tim Delaney decided to do a Halloween Tree in Frontierland to honor Ray Bradbury. And so she, and, and it's, this is the famous thing, cause, um, they decided to do it because Ray Bradbury was getting old mm-hmm. and might not have much time left. And he had written the book, yeah. The Halloween Tree, and always told Walt he thought that th- that, that should be represented at Disneyland. And they, Tony Baxter and Tom Delaney, Tim Delaney thought, okay, if we're going to do this, Time's running out. So they had a party to honor Ray Bradbury in the Golden Horseshoe Saloon outside, you know, that big tree that's right Mm -hmm. outside. Tony Baxter, Kim Irvine, Tim Delaney, they were creating the pumpkins with magic markers and hanging them on the tree as the party was going on. This is a story that I, I heard years ago from Tony Baxter. And so they painted all the jack-o'-lantern faces. And then when the party ended, um Ray Bradbury came out and they turned on the tree and dedicated it. And the wonderful thing is they're still doing it. And it's just such a wonderful tribute. It adds so much to that area of Frontierland during Halloween.
1: Oh, I totally agree. Michael, I, when I'm down there at that time of the year, I love to go over and look at all the different faces and take pictures of them. And yeah, it's, it's just a, Oh, just a yeah. wonderful.
0: I mean, it, I, and with that purple light, mm, it gives the purple lights on the tree, it. She gives it such a neat, eerie sort of feeling. The, yeah. The, yeah. The, glow, the eerie glow. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I do too. So Kim learned from Tony to always keep pushing design one more step to make a special. And I've heard this from others, that when you think you're done, you're not. Find something else you can do. Keep pushing it and all that. And then, of course, mentor is Marty Scalar. Um, He always listened to her frustrations. He taught her that there's always a way to negotiate to get what you want. And It's a Small World was Marty's favorite. His idea was to make, he had an idea to make the facade multicolored. You probably remember when that happened. Mm-hmm. Another big controversy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Disneyland Because Disneylanders don't like change. You're so right. A Michael. lot of times. Yeah. So, so he assigned it to Kim and Alice. And during a seminar, he asked um, Mary Blair and all that. But she had designed it to be white to depict the um, – Depict depict the purity of children, and then um, and what Alice said was when she saw it, um, someone made it into a damn crazy quilt. So they changed it back um, for the fiftieth anniversary to the white and gold, and all that. So uh, I like the classic look. So of that. anyway, so I do too. But if you go to Hong Kong Disneyland, they do have the multiple Oh, they do. Okay. Look. Yeah. Yeah and when adding the disney characters she designed the look and color patterns that fit into the mary blair design of the attraction then there is uh, and that was controversial i mean i remember her saying she got death threats when they were added in the the, so, the disney characters into small you know, world i was skeptical she yeah. got death threats and they have even more in her. she did i know people are crazy but but she got. Um, I know that there's even more characters in Hong Kong. The only thing I don't like about it is I don't think the music from the films. Um, I I don't think it 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 blends into the It's a Small World theme song very well.
1: No, you, so. yeah, you're right, Michael. I, I don't think it does. So. Yeah.
0: So, but you know, I was skeptical of it, but when our granddaughter, she was like two or three, I think two, we went on it right after the characters were added. She, when we were going through the attraction, she pointed out every single Disney character. She just pointed at them. And then I, I, it won me over. Uh-huh. I thought, okay, so I'm fine with it now.
1: Well, I think the reason <laughs> I, I mean, I wasn't sure. I I was like, well, I'm going to hold back judgment until I go see it in person. And once I saw it in person, I thought that they did such a good job blending it in with the the, the children and within the attraction that it didn't it wasn't like um so jarring to see them in there. And that, you know, that they put them in their in the countries of where they would belong. So, uh, you, you know, I thought
0: I I didn't have a problem with it.
1: I'm sorry that Kim got death
0: threats over it. That's crazy. I know. Kim, one could be a little too passionate about things. So, and then 21 Royal. Have you eaten there? No, have you? (laughs) No, not yet. Anyway, there are plans afoot. That's on my bucket list, too. But, uh, nope. of course, that area. Of course, it's above Pirates of the Caribbean. Is originally going to be the Disney apartment for Walt, Roy, and their families, and then, uh, and then um, it has two fireplaces. Were in there. There was some molding, but then it was stopped after Walt's death, and it was used for offices and storage until the Disney Gallery <sighs> opened. Up there, and that was a wonderful use of the space. Oh, I, Disney Gallery, of course, is now at the Main Street Opera House,
1: but it's just not the same,
0: Michael. Town Square, it's just
1: not the same. It's not I, oh, that I really miss, you know, it, above that, yeah.
0: pirates. It was it was neat mm-hmm. up there. So, uh, so for the year of a million dreams, Ken, um, Potrock, um, wanted an apartment that could be given away. So he took over the Disney gallery, turned it into Walt's dream apartment. He had the Dorothea Redmond designs and she was the first art director for Disneyland. And he used those for the apartment and each area is themed to a different area of Disneyland. And I've been in it a couple of times and it is really nice and very remarkable. So, And the living room was sort of designed with Victorian blue. The bedroom is Frontierland with a pot belly stove and a train going around the molding at the top. It's a very masculine room, masculine brown colors, things like that. The back bedroom was supposed to be Walt and Lillian's bedroom, and it's um, Adventureland-themed, and the balcony overlooks Adventureland. Um, Walt's office was turned into a bathroom, and it's themed to um, – an Edwardian style main street motif. And the patio overlooks the blue Bayou and, and it's themed to the blue Bayou. Remember when you could rent out the, they would have a dessert party up there that you could buy and then you'd watch fantastic. Mm -hmm, I do remember that. That was a fantastic dessert party too. They did not skimp at all. So on that. So, um, and then they want what and then they wanted a chef's table for club 33 and that became 21 royal and they have paintings of New Orleans in there and there's a mirror where if you turn off the lights of um, fairy lights a uh, fairies light all the candles on the mantles Aww. and she showed take a little video uh-huh. of that so um, and that it's a big price tag Um for that experience, that dining experience. And I think you get a couple of gifts and all that uh-huh. as part of it. And then the Adventureland Treehouse. Now, she said that the original treehouse is falling into disrepair, and they wanted to take it down. Disneyland executives wanted to take it down. But it has such a small footprint. And because of issues with the original film that there's a disclaimer in the front of it they took the positive element and i'm getting tired of this this whole issues and disclaimers and all that but that's just well, it,
1: from um, swiss family robinson the, uh-huh. is that
0: yeah i'm sure it has to do with the pirates or something oh okay, okay. And, you know and all that Anyway, so they took them. The um, they took the favorite elements from the film, and they created a new family. and And the reason it was turned into Tarzan Treehouse, she had said, because again, the tree was falling into disrepair, and and Tony Baxter saved it. So again, they were having another issue with it, and so she saved it. And she said that her, her philosophy is: if you take something down, you replace it with something equal or better. Mm. And re- remember that, that is a big change from, re- you remember this, the eighties when they were closing attractions down and then replacing them with um, merchandise stands and, you know, shops and, or not replacing them at all.
1: Oh, I remember. And yeah. All
0: that. So um, yeah, yeah. Those are the dark days <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> before the 50th anniversary. So anyway, so, so they took the favorite elements from the film and they created a new family. So the daughter is an astronomer. The sons are naturalists who like plants and animals. The father is a cook. Um, Becky Klein had stored the original water wheel because they took it off oh. for Tarzan's mm-hmm. treehouse. She had the original water wheel and they recreated it and they, and, and, Remember, this was on September 30th. This presentation they had just tested the water wheel two days before this, and she said it would open in mid October. Um, but it opened in, um, I think it opened in towards the end of October.
1: Oh, I thought it was opening November right. 10th, I
0: think, or beginning of November. I think November 10th is it. Oh, you're right, November, November. 10th. It's it's had, it's had its previous, yeah, it's like soft openings all that yeah. already, yeah, yeah and oh, and mother is a musician oh. and all that as well so so they talked about that so they saved the treehouse so that's wonderful that they did that and i'm i'm glad they still have the the little attractions you know that mm-hmm. would have been a tickets or b tickets something like that I, I, oh
1: and God. i like when you go up there i mean it's a great
0: view of like rivers of america and looking mm-hmm.
1: out so uh and I mean, even on some warm days, when you went up there, you would get a nice little breeze. So I'm glad they, you know, didn't do away with it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I agree with you. So I know there was a rumor years ago when they were going to take it down and it was going to be like storage. Oh. They're going to replace it with some storage for merchandise and stuff. I thought, that would have been horrible. Yeah. So, Oh, goodness. Yeah. And then he talked about Tiana's palace and that was Disneyland's French market. Well, they said that she said when they were creating princess and the frog and the artists met with her, instead of going to new Orleans, they went to the French market at Disneyland and they patterned, um, they patterned the look of Tiana's restaurant at the end of the film on the French market. So that's why, since it was the inspiration for the film, it was really easy to redo it as Tiana's Palace.
1: Oh, I didn't know that, Michael. So,
0: that's interesting. That's really I didn't interesting. either. I thought that was really, wasn't that interesting? So she said the, the mosaics, um, by Colin Campbell were in very bad shape. So, and so there are, so the, um, And they were, they were, they couldn't really be saved for that. So the the main one is at Imagineering. So um, and and they and and for future insulation elsewhere, she said they're restoring it. and all that, and so um, so they said they learned how to. one of the things that she learned was how to be a good ambassador and to be a good team player with like operations and maintenance and all that from Marty, because, you know, early on, you know, some Imagineers sort of thought (coughs) that they were the most important thing. And Walt told them, you know, you need to listen to the operations people and the plumbers and all of that because they're just as important. In, in in building all these things. And Marty was a great believer in all of that. She said there are now 50 Imagineers at Disneyland, and they are responsible for the entire resort. Oh, wow. And then I'm thinking about what they're doing at Downtown Disney, and I, if they're responsible for that, I'm not all that impressed.
1: <laughs> you didn't ask for that question, Mike,
0: Michael? <laughs> I did, and I asked her a different question oh, okay. at the end when I was when I was getting my book signed. Um, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Anyway, um, for pro- then there was the Q and A. One of the questions was you might remember this project Stardust, where um, that was running years ago. It was a little controversial, where there were widening pathways and things like that to redoing flower planters mm-hmm. to deal with the crowds before the opening of Galaxy's Edge. Oh, I do remember that. Yeah. And she said that Disney, yeah, you know, she said Disneyland was not created for crowds and even today they're always looking for ways to improve the flow. But uh and, and but they want to make those improvements invisible. They don't want guests to see what has changed. So they said they did a lot of studies. They did they removed curbs at the hub, but they left them a gray color to give that look of a curb. And that was just to make it easier for not only electric vehicles, all that, but just for movement of people mm-hmm. and everything. Um, the pathway through the plaza in the planter, um, was redone, they moved trees. They um they closed a shop next to the Bengal barbecue for an eating area, which was nice. And and you know sharp edges of planters were rounded. And so they did all these things in order to sort of open up the pathways. And all that. And she said that they have added um you know, the Society of Explorers and Adventurers, they have added Easter eggs to the park. And there is one in the new treehouse in the daughter's room because she is interested in being a member of S.E.A., <laughs> And during the book signing, I told, I asked her, and I mentioned this when we did our Disneyland reunion show a while back. Um, I said, you know, we hear all these great announcements about Disneyland, but a lot of us are always disappointed that we don't hear anything about Tomorrowland. And I said, that's a land I almost rarely go in anymore. And I said, you know, what's happening with that? And I, and I said, I realize you might not be able to answer this question. She said, we have wonderful plans for it she said you'll be very happy i am very excited she said stay tuned for the announcement
1: ooh and
0: i said um and i said oh you know it'd be wonderful if uh you know but those mary blair murals you know if they were uncovered she said well you know there's still one there and she said yes it would be wonderful if if it was uncovered and I'm thinking, wow, is that part of the plan? Oh my, uh, that gosh. would be terrific. That would be amazing, Michael. Yeah, because I mean, that would be. Yeah, so many
1: people are always. I mean, I guess Tomorrowland's always been an issue because things, by the time they get built, <laughs> the future changes. So exactly that's what Walt mm-hmm. said. Yeah. So well, I'm, I'm. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Well, I that there it's going to get some love.
0: So. I am too. I'm very excited about it. And I think that just, you know, everything, every time I hear her or see her on television, I just think she, she will do a great job mm-hmm. with, with whatever it is. I think she and her team will. And so advice that she had for people, no matter what what area, what your job or career is, is be a good listener. Say yes to compromise so that everyone wins and be humble. So I thought it was a great talk. And she seems like such a nice person, you know, again, easily approachable. She didn't come across as being full of herself or anything like that, but really dedicated to the legacy of Walt and his Imagineers.
1: Now, Michael, I had tickets, but I wasn't able to attend because I had my grandson's birthday and to go to, but um since she started in 1970 and I mean she just you know jumped in cuz they needed help did she ever go to have formal training or was it just all I the I think job? she did go she did
0: No, I think she did have some formal training and all that but um but yeah but I think she learned from all these people and from her mother and father as well,
1: yeah that, that's what I was just wondering Did, was it all like on the job training from her mother, her father, all of her mentors yeah, I, think, I, I think
0: I think a lot of it was absolutely was so anyway, but two great presentations, and now it's time for this week in Disney history. <laughs> Trish, I always give my guest co host the opportunity to go first. So would you like to share your Disney history um, event first?
1: Oh, oh, thanks, Michael. I appreciate that. So mine is November 12th, 1957. The Disney stock is first listed on the New York Stock Exchange and the price For um, per share is $13.88. Now, if you invested a thousand dollars back in 1957, Michael, you would get 72 whole shares. But since the Disney Company has had six stock splits in the company's history today, that those 72 shares that you bought in 1957 would be. Twenty-seven thousand six hundred and forty-eight shares. So that's a wow. lot of, <laughs> a lot more shares. And if you look at today, I checked today's stock market closing, and the Disney stock um, today closed at eighty-four dollars and two cents. So those twenty-seven thousand six hundred and forty-eight shares, Michael, would be worth. Two million three hundred twenty-two thousand nine hundred eighty-four dollars and ninety-six cents. So, Michael, you and I could both take that Disney adventure around the world by (laughs) plane and visit all those Disney parks. We could go have dinner at Club uh, Twenty-One Royale and uh, Twenty-One Royale. Yeah, we could do a lot of things with that money. So,
0: yes, gosh, I know. So,
1: I thought that was very interesting. So, that was November twelfth, nineteen fifty-seven. But that's the first public on um, trading on the New York Stock Exchange. But it was back in 1940, Michael, that Walt, Lillian, Roy, and Edna were the owners of the Disney company, and they made shares public for the first time, um, but not traded on the Stock Exchange. They had 155,000 preferred stock at $25 each and 600,000 um, shares of common stock at $5 each. Now, Michael, this was at the tail end of the Great Depression, and um, the war was looming um, for us—World War II. And can you believe, even with all that happening, all those Disney shares were sold out by the end of the day? And it would—they raised. Well, that is amazing. Isn't that amazing? Um, So they raised from the sale of those um, preferred and common stock, they raised $9 million, um, which was a needed boost for the company and helped pay for the new Burbank studio. But it also fueled um, the Disney strike, um, you know, was a fuel part because the staff felt that they should be able to take part, um, take, you know, have a share in all this newfound riches. So I thought that was a little interesting to find out about the, the Disney stock. So there you have the Disney history. Of yeah,
0: that. that is interesting. So. Yeah, that that is fascinating.
1: Uh, Michael, do you have any shares of uh, Disney stock?
0: I do. Not, not as much as that, <laughs> but um Yes. When I was in college, some friends chipped in and bought me a share as a birthday gift. And then for our wedding, um, a number of friends gave us Disney stock as wedding gifts. So I have a handful of shares. Yeah, yeah,
1: I I do as well. What about you, Church? Yeah, I have some too. Not not as much, and um, yeah, maybe about twenty shares. That's about it. <laughs> So, um, but I've been thinking. Yeah, I don't think I have that much. I was thinking maybe I should uh, invest a little bit because the stock has gone down a bit,
0: but it, it'll go up again. Stock has gone down. It will. It will go up again. So, so you know, buy low, sell exactly. high. Exactly. <laughs> so, well, it was funny because you know the the Disney housekeeper, the um, oh, Fufu. She every yeah. Walt would always. It was a famous story that Walt like for Christmas and birthdays and that would give her shares of stock. And she hung on to them because she, uh, she felt it was disloyal to sell them. And so when she became old and had to go into assisted care and all that, Diane Disney Miller found out about that. And she, um, she would, she basically paid for her, put her in, you know, a good, facility and paid for it until she passed after she passed it was discovered she had hung on to all the stock walt had given her over the years oh. and that she was a multimillionaire. oh wow and didn't know it oh yeah huh. so and i think the funds were used because she had had a um i think she had a child that had some um I I don't know, has some mental disabilities Mm -hmm. or something, whatever you'd call it, mental challenges. And so I think the money was used to open up, like, uh, you know, to care for children that had the same challenges to help them out and young adults uh and all that. So anyway, and I think if I remember the story correctly, I think it was like Dan Disney Miller helped facilitate that in her memory. Oh, how nice. So. So yeah, it is a nice story, but, but it's not amazing. She wouldn't sell the stock because she felt it would be disloyal <laughs> yes. to Walt and memory. <laughs> yeah. Well, mine, since we're talking about the Walt Disney family museum, mine is November 15th, 2012. And the Walt Disney family museum exhibition, this was the very first special exhibition they had. You probably remember it snow white and the seven dwarfs, the creation of a classic. Open to the general public on this day and it ran until April 14th, 2013. And it celebrated Walt's vision and artistry of his staff. It it told the story of how they shaped and defined a new American art form through the creation of this groundbreaking film and it was important to me because uh when our disneyland show was running i was invited to come on and talk about the exhibition uh and so i did and then i was done and then carol said how did it go and i said i think it went fine And I figured it was a Uh one-off. Well, then I was contacted by Tom Bell, who was the producer of the show. And about two weeks later, and he said, would you like to come back to the show? But I want you to fully participate. And he gave me an outline of all the things I should prepare for. And he said, I want you to just fully, fully join in. And so I did. And by that time, I was friends with everybody on the show because we knew them because we had traveled together, Uh you know, things like that gone to the parks together and so it was it was easy to jump in and then uh and then carol asked when i was. how did it go and i said not sure but i think i was just auditioned (laughs) and then i didn't hear anything for a couple of weeks and then tom contacted me and said before i reach out to the then owner of the diz he asked do you want to join the show full time and i said sure he said okay i wanted and i talked about it with carol first and i said sure and he told me what my responsibilities would be and then i would be doing history segments on the park because there uh, no i'd be doing history segments on everything but the park because there was another historian at the time that uh would just be doing park history little did i know is he was he was planning to leave the show and then I would take over completely as the Disney historian. So I, uh, I said sure. And then Tom proposed it to the owner who said yes. Cause I've been writing for the Diz. I've been writing little history segments for the website. And so, um, and that's how I got my start. And then connecting with Walt is basically the spinoff of the Disneyland show. Because people were contacting the owner saying, you have a person telling the history of Disneyland. We don't have anybody telling the history of Walt Disney World. And through conversations, that's how Connecting with Walt started. Oh. So I owe it to this exhibition at the Walt Disney Family Museum and then Tom Bell for inviting me to be a part of the Disneyland show. Wow, Michael, so, that's great. Uh, so. Wow. I know, I know. It's a lo- sort of a long story, but I, I owe it to Snow White. <laughs> the seven dwarfs. And and of course, someday my prince will come was our first dance.
1: Oh, oh was our, it really?
0: Reception. Oh. Yeah, Carol chose that dance. And I said we are learning the waltz because I'm not going to look like a fool <laughs> up there. And so we, um, you took dance so lessons. We took dance lessons. Oh, yeah, yeah. We learned it. We learned a few dances for our reception. Oh, how lovely! So that was that was it. Yeah. So so two good historic events. Now we have a, a special. Uh, Sort of fan event up here, a Northern California Disney fan event that's called, called MouseCon. And that was this past weekend. I couldn't go because I had another, something else planned, but you went and I've talked about it in previous years. But do you want to share with our listeners what went on at MouseCon this year? And, um, you know, what your experiences are like, who you heard. Speak things like that. Oh sure, thanks,
1: Michael. Um, so this was the eighth annual MouseCon, and um, it was um, held in Concord and at the Concord Plaza Inn. Mm. And what it was from ten to five, and it is the best Disney bargain. It's just ten dollars um, entry fee, free parking, and children under twelve are free. So it's a it's a great uh, little event. So um they had um some um different um Disney um oh my goodness my brain just froze there michael um so they had um different um Disney celebrities we'll say um at the at MouseCon they had nikita uh i don't know if i'm saying her name correctly nikita kalami harris she was the voice of young nala in the lion king um, they had Disney legend, uh, Tony Anselmo, um, as in everyone, if you know, he's the voice of Donald Duck, um, our current voice of Donald Duck. They had Eden Gross, who's the who was the voice of Flounder in the animated Little Mermaid movie. Um, Lorna Cook, who was a Disney animator for Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, a story artist. Um, she was there and she was also the director of uh, Spirit, the, Sal- the Stallion of the Cimarron. Um, Amy O'Neill was the daughter, Amy Zelensky in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, but she did a lot of other TV shows and she's producing a film right now about Jim Morrison before he joined the Doors. Dan Molina, he was the voice of The Fish Out of Water and Chicken Little. And he also, Dan was the um, editor of that movie, as well as Planes, Fire and Rescue, then they had uh, Mimi Gibson, who was the voice of Lucky from 101 Dalmatians, the 1961 animated film. She's also done lots of TV shows and movies as well. Rick Law, who's a Disney artist. John Morris, who's the voice of Andy um, in Toy Story um, episode, uh, movies one through four, also video games. Then they had um, his name is Jerry Cornell. He does these DVDs called Theme Parkology, which are really great um, DVDs about different mm-hmm. attractions. They had CN. I have quite a few of them. Oh, do you? They're great, aren't they, Michael?
0: They are. They're very good.
1: And they had um, also there was C. Andrew Nelson. He's done, um, He's portrays Darth Vader in film, TV commercials, print, does live appearances. He's also an artist, actor, writer, producer. Um, he, oh, I didn't realize he also worked at an industrial, um, ILM, um, up here in the Bay area, Josh Sha- Schaefer, who was an author and then, um, Jeff Mann who, Jeff, Bam, oh, excuse me. Oh my gosh, Jeff, Jeff Bam, who's the, um, haunted mansion expert. Mm-hmm. So, um, most of these people had little tables and you could, um, go up and chat with them and get autographs and get pictures. Um, and then they also um had several talks. Now, I was a little disappointed because usually they have little talks with these special their special Disney guests guests throughout the day and um they only had three sessions uh, at this MouseCon. So I was a, a little disappointed. Um so I spent
0: before the first so they only had three they only had three speakers? Yes. Yes. Gosh, because usually on their stages they'll have like a couple sessions on each stage. Yeah, they only had one, two or three. That's what they've done in the past. Yeah,
1: and this time they only had one stage, and they only had three speakers, which was really sort of disappointing. Um, so I'm I, I'm not really sure. I mean, I would have loved to have heard some of these people um, speak, and you know about their their role as as a voice actor in these films or as a director, but the only speakers that we had were Jeff Bam and, um, uh, some of them met, uh, uh Rick Law and, um, I'm sorry, not Rick Law. Um, Jerry O'Connor from Theme Parkology, Sandra Nelson, Josh Schaefer. They talked a little bit. They had something it was called oh, adventurous ideas, an audio show that they're doing. And then, the, and then I'm so happy they did have Tony Anselmo speak. So, um, yeah, that's, so that was a little
0: disappointing, but it's funny. I think they've had them speak before at MouseCon. con. Mm-hmm. So it would have been nice if they had had people there that haven't spoken before, you know, as well.
1: Oh, exactly. Yeah, really. I mean, cause I would have loved to have, you know, heard about, you know, Mimi, who was the voice of lucky from 101 Dalations, you know, what was that experience like, and, and, you know, I'm, inter- I'm always interested to hear um, from the different voice actors, um, voiceover actors to, you know, to hear what they, you know, what their experiences were. So, it, yeah, it was a little disappointing. Um, MouseCon, though, also has um, a lot of vendors. So you can, um, you know, purchase things. So they had two rooms. But even that is not as much as they've had as many vendors as they've had in the past. And I hate to say this, Michael, I came away with nothing. I did not buy a single item. I love um, the old oh, wow. Disney um, you know, collectibles. So I just didn't really see anything that tickled my fancy. So, um, yeah, I, but it was kind of fun to see, f- you know, friends that were there as well. Um, then at, they also have at four o'clock, Um, a a costume cosplay contest. And so there's a lot of people that uh, dress up and, you know, it's it's fun Mm -hmm. to see all the the people in their different costumes. And I just was looking at them thinking, wow, you're, you know, dressed up like this for, um, you know, from 10 to five. That's kind of, (laughs) that's a long
0: time. (laughs) I remember they one year, the last year I went there a few years ago, I remember they had someone dressed up as like, Big Thunder Mountain, with the train running, yes, and all that. I mean, it was amazing.
1: <laughs> and um, last,
0: and, and then they and they had R two D two roaming around. Actually, they did have R- somebody built. Yeah,
1: someone had built the R two D two was back roaming around, and the woman who ha- was um, Big Thunder Mountain, she, um, she also, I think, last year she was a haunted mansion. And, um,
0: it was, I've seen that costume. Yeah. So too. it's the
1: same woman yeah. and, and it's just amazing. So she and her husband worked together and I asked her about last year's costume. And she just said that, um, it takes them a good year to, to do the whole thing, but it's just amazing. And this year she was there and she was, um, Oh my gosh, Michael. Um, the Pixar movie about emotions. Um,
0: Inside, Inside out. out.
1: Yes. So she was, um, she had like, um, she had a little wagon now and like with the little memory balls in it, but it was, it wasn't as detailed as a costume as, as she had been. And like, um, Bing Bong was in her little wagon too. So yeah, but <laughs> it, you know, it was kind of fun to see. So it's always kind of fun to see the, the fans, you know, dressing up in their costumes. And there was one, um, you know, uh, you know, young woman, she was Belle. And someone I had, you know, overheard saying, Oh, I love your dress. And it was the yellow gown and she looked beautiful. I'm like, Oh, did you make it? She said, No, I bought it on Amazon. <laughs> so, but they say you can enter the contest either in Starbucks costumes or your own. So it's okay. It's all in fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't attend the Adventurous Ideas um, talk, but I did attend Jeff Bam's haunted mansion. And he spoke a little bit about, um, um, attending the Garner Holt, um, um, gala event that to raise money for uh, his foundation. So he talked a little bit about that. He talked about Rolly Crump and his involvement in the haunted mansion and, um, talked with, um, Rolly's son, um, Chris Crump and, Oh, and, and, you know, what they thought about, um, the new Haunted Mansion movie, because in there, um, it's the, uh, villain's home is Crump Manor. And, um, yeah, they, I guess they weren't too thrilled with that. <laughs> um, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, cause you know, it happened, you know, shortly after, you know, the movie came out shortly after Rolly's death. So I don't know if that had something to do with it or not. So, but, um, I really enjoyed listening to, even though I've heard Tony and Samuel speak before, I really enjoyed his, his talk. He's, um, he's also a very humble person and he talked about how his dad didn't want him to become an artist and he went to the Disney studios and they told him to go to school, but he said he couldn't afford it. And it was, um, Ron um, Miller and Diane Disney Miller who paid for him to go to Cal Arts. I didn't know if you knew that, Michael. Wow. Yeah. and No, I didn't. Yeah. And so he said he wouldn't have been able to go because when he, you know, went in for his little interview and his brought his portfolio, they said, yo, you need to continue to school. And he said, I, I I can't, my dad won't allow it or pay for it. And, and, um, they called Ron in and they had him sit outside in the hall and Ron came out, gave him a big thumbs up and they called him back in. And he said, I, he was wondering what he had done to get into trouble and, They said that Ron and Diane were going to pay his entire way. So um, he just was very thankful and appreciative. And, you know, he talked a little bit about the museum too and how it's a wonderful place and how the Disney family is so supportive. And, you know, they just did a wonderful job with the museum. So he had good things to say about them. He talked a little bit about his history of um, working uh, uh, with um, Clarence Nash and how he became the voice of... Donald Duck, he said it took him about three years. And he said the reason, you know, someone asked him, well, how did you get into that? Because um, Tony was basically an animator. He said that uh, a lot of times animators, when they're animating scenes, they'll just grab someone to do what they call a scratch voice. So it's not the actual voice of who's going to be in the film. And so he had done some voices, as scratch voices for um, different films that he had worked on. And Clarence had heard him. And so then he just started to talk, start to talk to him and about his voice work as Donald Duck. And, um, and Tony was interested in it. And so they just started chatting and um, working together. And Tony just thought it was for fun. He never realized that, you know, Clarence was grooming him to be the next voice. And someone asked um, a question if, you would um oh if he did any vocal exercises to prepare and he said no because Clarence and Tony they don't use their vocal cords to do the voice of Donald duck he said he could have laryngitis michael and still uh perform as donald um wow yeah and so i thought that was interesting and someone goes well i saw on youtube that um you put air in a pocket of air in your cheek and that's how you do the voice and <laughs> He said, "No, that's not true." I, she said, "I think it got misinterpreted. They were just joking about how they do the voice." And he said that um, if he told, he said if he told us how to do the voice of Donald Duck, he'd have to kill us. <laughs> Tony said, "I can't let the, it's a well-guarded secret." He said, but then he sort of went on to say, "You can't really believe anything you hear on the internet." Um. What I thought was also interesting, he felt that um, animation, that there's room for 2D animation plus, you know, CG that they could work together. Um, So I thought that was sort of interesting. Oh, I'm sorry, Michael. Um, One of the stories he talked about um, uh, Clarence um, Nash was uh, St. Joseph's Hospital, you know, is across from the studio. And um, they went over there, I'm not real, um, really sure what was the reason they were over there. And a nurse came up to him and said, Oh, we, there's this child screaming. And they said, Oh, would you talk to the, the child? And Clarence Nash had this little puppet of Donald Duck and the child just screaming at the top of, um, I don't know. He didn't say if it was a wear girl, uh, the top of their lungs. And, um, he said that, he, uh, Clarence just went up to the, the child with a puppet and in Donald's voice said, shut up. <laughs> and oh, he said shut up and the child did and the child stopped screaming <laughs> so uh
0: he's so um well that's very much in character of Don. yeah
1: and um <laughs> so that was like a little story that he shared about um uh clarence and that you know how uh he's continuing his legacy um and what else did he say oh he asked jack Hanna. um uh, who had for advice because he said sometimes when he, when Tony and Salmon would do the voice of Donald Duck, you know, you get very, um, f- you can feel faint because you're using a lot of breath and, and such. And, um, and he, Because Clarence had passed and Tony didn't have this chance to ask him, he said that Jack goes, Oh, Clarence would fall over in a dead faint all the time, (laughs) you know, so it's okay, (laughs) you know. So he didn't have any, you know, advice of how to prevent that from happening, but he said that was just normal. So, but again, Tony, I mean, he just seemed to appreciate, um the animators he worked with the company that he wants to keep the legacy going. Um, he says that uh, he doesn't put himself as Donald. Um, that's not his job. He's, you know, just continuing that. And he said that when he goes to, um, recording sessions, what he does do is listen to recordings of Clarence Nash as Donald Duck to keep that, um, true feeling of the character and and that voice to keep it spot on. So I thought, I thought that was really interesting, but he was, yeah, he mm-hmm. just seems very, um he just couldn't say enough good things about Clarence Nash and the company and everyone who had helped him while, you know, you know, working there. And then someone did ask the question, well, are you going to be training your replacement? And he said, well, my family has, they've, they have a very long life. And um, he goes, I'm only in my 60s. So I said, I have a a good 20 years to go. But I thought this was interesting, Michael. (laughs) He said that, um, so he's not training anyone right now. But he said that moving forward, if you can, he would be happy for AI if they could take all the recordings that Clarence Nash did as Donald Duck and AI somehow create that voice, then you don't need another actor. So then Tony would retire, and it would just be an AI version of uh, Clarence Nash, Nash doing Donald. Well,
0: that is the controversy right now, is AI is doing a decent job of recreating voices. So I hadn't thought of that, recreating the characters' voices. Although, could it create the emotion? You know, and the heart. Could it capture the heart? <laughs> That's in a voice. I don't know. know? I don't know.
1: know. I'm not really sure about that.
0: I mean, I've heard it recreate like president Biden's voice and, you know, uh, you know, notable figures, but I haven't heard it create, you know, an animated figure or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Animated character.
1: Yeah. I haven't. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, he spoke for, you know, each of these sessions were about an hour. And so then he finished and, Um, so, uh, you know, that I, then they were having the contest. So I started, it was around four o'clock then. So I headed out, but I mean, um, you know, it's, it's, it's fun. You know, it's a, it was a fun day. It's in, um, you know, something that, you know, maybe, um, they also have one down in Bakersfield that they do. So if um, anyone's interesting, they could maybe look at that. And again, like I said, it's, it's a pretty good, you know. It's a fun day, and um, and it's very reasonably priced for uh, Disney fans. So, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. oh, great. Well, thank you for sharing. A-, a few months back, we did a show on Walt's plane, and that had been on display at the D twenty three Expo. And you went down to where it is housed, and you have an update for us on that.
1: Yes. Um, well, Michael, um, I'm really glad uh, I, my husband and I went last December down to the Palm Springs air museum because they, after the D 23 expo, um, they brought it over to be on display at the Palm Springs air museum, which is a fabulous air museum. And, and it, um, was open to the public on December 5th. Uh, It was unveiled there at the um, museum. And we went after Christmas and, um, you know, we were able to see the plane and they had exhibit cases that showed like the customized instrument panel, a telephone headset, flight bag um, with Mickey, with Mickey's figure on it, um, a cabin chair, window, model of the little plane, um, diagrams of the interior, letters from Grumman, flight operations manual, napkins, postcards, and lots of photos. So, you know, the exhibit cases that they, if anyone went to the expo, The ones that you saw at the Expo were now at the Palm Springs Air Museum. So we got to see the plane and we got to see that. Well, we were just recently down there again um, at the museum. And of course, I want to go see it again and look at it. And it's gone. So the plane wasn't there on display. The exhibit cases were still there, but the plane was gone. So I talked to one of the volunteers and that what they said, the plane's not gone, but what they've done is they've moved it across. Um, this air. The Palm Springs Air Museum is located on the north side of the Palm Springs International Airport. On the south side, the museum has some hangars and Walt's plane is there right now. And what they're doing to it is working on um, um, redoing the interior of the plane, because when we saw the plane at the expo, it was just the exterior that they had done. So, um, now the plane, the interior is being restored and to look like what it did in the 1960s when Walt flew on it. And it's in conjunction with Phoenix air. So it's in this separate hangar, and they're working on it. So then I asked that, um, uh, the volunteer said, oh, are we going to be able to go on, on board Walt's plane? And he said, unfortunately, no. Um, he said that they're, you know, they're going to be filming, you know, the restoration. So they're going to um, have so you'll be able to look um, at it at filming part, uh, parts that they filmed and what it looks like, like a little uh, video of the uh, tour of the inside of the plane. And then they will have like the door open that you could like walk up the little steps and just sort of look in, um, but not actually go onto the plane. He said, because it's just in such delicate condition as it is, because, you know, being out in Florida for all those years that the interior just wouldn't, you know, hold up to, you know, everyone just, you know, going through it. So Mm -hmm. um, if your listeners are thinking to go see it, it's not there right now on display. Call ahead. Yeah. So it, I think <laughs> I
0: it's going to be they a while. Said, yeah. I remember they said when we talked about it, the call ahead, because it would be pulled into a hangar. Oh, did they? Um, for restoration and pulled out and then pulled back in again. So that's good to know. They're working on oh. it. I thought they had said the hope was we could go through it. So it sounds like you'll be able to walk up the stairs, poke your head in, and walk down again. You know that's better than nothing, right? And then the fact that they'll, you know, know. they'll, they'll,
1: you know, film the inside of it so you can see that on a mm-hmm. screen. Yeah, you just wouldn't be able to.
0: Yeah. Which. Yeah. Well, thank yes. Well, thank you for that update. I'll look for when they finish restoration. I, I will definitely go down there. Well, Trish, thank you for joining us on Connecting with Walt. This was great fun. I hope you enjoyed it.
1: I did. My pleasure. I mean, Michael, it's it's very exciting for me because I just love listening um, to Connecting with Walt, and I have since, well, I, since I, well, I've been listening to you since you've been on the Diz. And um, so this has been, what a great experience for me to be, uh, to joining you today. So thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you.
0: Oh, absolutely. I hope you'll come back when we talk about more of the museum events okay. of, and all of that you attend so many of them, along with me. So we will be back next week with another new episode. But until then, you can connect with me um, by sending me messages at michaelbowling at disneyinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael 121 dash connecting with Walt, Instagram, and Michael Bowling, the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studios, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our episode description. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother, Roy.